Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. for uh, being here. Uh, this morning, we are officially kind of stepping into the Easter season and kicking off a short series that we have entitled The Death of Death. And so this morning, we're stepping into what has traditionally been called uh, Holy Week or Passion Week in church history. And the aim of this week and of Good Friday that we will observe coming up in just a few days and Easter Sunday is to examine the events surrounding the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ. And before we get to Resurrection Sunday, before we get to the hope of what's coming at Easter, uh, it's valuable for us to spend some time considering the last moments and days of Jesus leading up to his death and crucifixion. It helps us as we focus on that to uh, narrow in on the specifics of the good news of the gospel for us. And so today we're going to look at what I'm guessing is a pretty familiar passage for you. Whether you've grown up in church and you're a regular at church or whether this is your first time, I'm guessing you've probably heard an account of the Last Supper before that Jesus has with his disciples. Uh, But before we get into the specifics of the passage, I want us to think for a moment about the idea of meals, right? So on the one hand, meals are just an ordinary part of what it means to be a created human being, aren't they? Uh, On the other hand, I mean, well, our creational design, right, we have to eat, Right? We have to eat, and we have to eat fairly often. And every culture has set up some kind of daily rhythm that has regularly blocked out times for eating these meals. So in our culture today, we spend a significant part of each day, if you're anything like me, uh, preparing and planning for and partaking in meals, whether it be breakfast, lunch, or dinner. But we know that all meals are not equal. Not all meals are created the same. There's certainly some meals that are infused with a little more significance than others. So I'm guessing, for example, if you're here and you're married, uh, a dinner that you share with your spouse on an anniversary is far more significant than making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on Tuesday. Or maybe celebrating that Thanksgiving feast is way more significant than reheating three-day-old leftovers on a Thursday evening, right? Uh, That dinner that you get all of your family together for and you celebrate and you feast and you eat a really good steak with some good sides and dessert, right? All that's taking place. I'm guessing that has more significance than the bowl of Captain Crunch you're going to enjoy tomorrow morning. And I like Captain Crunch, right? No offense to Captain Crunch, but there are meals that are simply more weighty and significant than others. Well, what we're going to see today in this text is that Jesus is going to take a very ordinary meal by all accounts, And he's going to infuse this meal with a ton of significance and meaning for us. He takes the ordinary components of a meal, of bread and the cup or wine, and he attributes them with beauty and importance. And then he graciously offers it to us as a gift to be enjoyed towards a particular end. And so we have this ordinary meal that all of a sudden takes on this extraordinary role in the life, especially of God's people. And I think we have much to consider and learn today as we set our hearts and we prepare them for Easter Sunday that is coming. 
So here's the main idea from this text this morning. Here's what we're aiming at. Jesus' substitutionary and sacrificial death is the fulfillment of Passover, remembered in the Lord's Supper, until he returns. Jesus' substitutionary and sacrificial death is the fulfillment of Passover, remembered in the Lord's Supper, until he returns. We're going to see that over three points this morning. We're going to begin by looking at the shadow of Passover in the first few verses, and then move to the substance of Christ, and then end by talking about the sustaining meal that Jesus has graciously offered to us to remember until he returns. So before we jump in and look at those specifics, would you pray with me and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word? Well, Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you that we have an opportunity in this particular uh, rhythm and season to enter into Passion Week, to enter into this week where we take some time out of our normal observance and reading of scripture and preaching and singing to specifically focus on Jesus, your death, and then the good news of resurrection that is coming. And so help us as your people today to enter into that with ears that can hear and eyes that can see and hearts that can receive from you. Help us today to understand what your word has to say. And Holy Spirit, may you stir up within us faith and repentance and worship. Help us to see all the other things in our lives that we're trusting besides you. Help us to turn from them and to be reminded of the invitation that you've given each and every one of us through the events that occurred in this week 2,000 years ago. Thank you that you've been faithful. Thank you that you're faithful to us now. Be with us during this time. Teach us and point us to the hope of Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by talking a little bit about the shadow of Passover. Let's read once more verses 17 through 19. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city, talking about Jerusalem here. To a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now this famous and familiar story of the Last Supper is set in the context of two festivals and feasts that have deep roots in the Old Testament. And they're both mentioned here in these verses. So the first is Passover, and the second is the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Two things that actually overlapped on the Jewish calendar. The Festival of Unleavened Bread was this week-long observance where the people of Israel would not eat any bread that had been leavened, bread that would cause it, something in the bread that would cause it to rise. And Passover was the meal that fell on the very first day of this week-long observance. And both of them hearken back to the events that unfolded with the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt in the Old Testament. If you've been reading along with us in community Bible reading, we've been seeped in exodus now for about a month, right? So we should be somewhat familiar with the story, but I want to set the historical background and context for just a moment, Uh, especially that story of Passover. Because usually when we read the account of the Last Supper and we think about communion and taking the Lord's Supper ourselves, we usually overlook the fact that this was originally a Passover meal. And as we're going to see, that Passover meal has tons of symbolism and significance that Jesus is trying to hook into. And so I want to pause and I want to go back to Exodus for a moment and set the stage. So if you remember back to that book of Exodus, it opens with God's people, the Israelites, 
in captivity in Egypt. And God raises up Moses as a mediator and as a leader for his people to demand that Pharaoh, this wicked king, would let the Israelites go. He would let them go and worship Yahweh, their Lord. And as Pharaoh refuses to do so, God, by his own mighty hand, over and over again, sends plagues that result in great devastation for the Egyptians and some really insane stuff that I'm so glad I didn't live through. Amen? Like boils on your skin, locusts, and then worst of all would be the gnats, right? Let's be honest, those gnats flying around constantly, that would drive me insane. I've had a fly in my house all week. It has evaded me. We're going to have to get it this afternoon because those gnats and flies, right, just everywhere, these plagues are, are showing God's judgment on the people of Egypt. But Pharaoh still refuses to let the Israelites go, even after all of this. So the Lord gives the people of Israel final instructions for what will be the end of their captivity and the final plague, the death of all the firstborn in the land. And so he instructs them to sacrifice a lamb, but not just any lamb. It had to be a lamb without blemish, right? They were to sacrifice it at twilight. They were then to take its blood and spread it on the doorposts of their homes. And then they were to eat the lamb as the main course of a meal. And the Lord instructed them that if they did this, he would pass over their homes and death would not visit them. That's where we get the idea of Passover from. And Exodus, of course, tells us that this is exactly what happened. The Lord did indeed pass over them. Death struck the Egyptians, and the Lord delivers his people from slavery as they follow him into the wilderness. And so in the instructions to the Passover meal, the Lord says this in Exodus 12, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. God is saying this moment this moment where I have delivered you by my mighty hand and my mighty works, this you are to remember every single year. You're to sit down and you're to enjoy this Passover meal per these instructions so that you might not forget the Lord's faithfulness to you. And so here we are now, fast forward to the Gospel of Matthew, some 1,500 years later after the original Passover took place. And Jesus, who has emphasized already in this book, that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He has not come to destroy all that has come before him, but instead he has come to fulfill all that is in the Old Testament, is preparing his disciples for the proper observance of this feast, of this particular meal. That's made clear, right? The disciples are asking, where can we prepare the Passover meal? Well, at the time of Jesus, here's how this meal would be observed. And listen to how each component is loaded with symbolism. So they would, of course, have unleavened bread. And the idea behind unleavened bread was to remember their quick and hasty exit from Egypt. So they were to eat the Passover meal with their belts tied and their sandals on, prepared to exit, prepared to leave the land. They would then prepare and eat bitter herbs, remembering their time of bitterness as they were enslaved in Egypt. Some evidence would show us that they would have a cup of salt water on the table which would represent their tears that were shed, and then ultimately their passing through the Red Sea by God's miraculous provision. There would be four cups of wine to remember the promises of Exodus 6, which say this, I will bring you out, I will free you, I will redeem you, and I will take you as my own people. Each cup representing one of those promises. And then, of course, the lamb. 
the lamb would be eaten per the instructions given in the law as the main part of the meal. And typically, whoever was presiding over this meal would take the opportunity to explain all of this, all of the historical backdrop, all of the significance, all of the symbolism of each and every part of this meal. So Passover is a meal that is observed annually, but that is meant to be supercharged with remembrance of the divine saving acts of the Lord towards his people. Now, why take the time to set the context in this way? After all, we don't really observe the Passover meal today, do we? So why take the time? Well, I want us to see something. I want us to see that God has been writing the story of redemption from the very beginning. And he's not just dealing in randomness. It's not like the Lord is course correcting as he goes and says, okay, now that all this has happened, here's what we'll do. No, no, the Lord doesn't deal that way. From eternity past, he's been writing the story of redemption and He's been consistently revealing himself to his people, inviting them and us to participate in his saving activity and to respond in gratitude and worship. The problem is, though, today, we tend to be a culture that lives very much in the present, in the here and now, so to speak. Right? We tend to measure cultural milestones from one social media outrage to the next. And those don't have a lot of staying power, do they? I mean, can you tell me what the social media outrage was two years ago today? How about one year ago today? How about two weeks ago of today, right? Now, occasionally there are moments that shake us up out of this nowness, but for the most part, we live sort of in this mundane insignificance of one outrage to the next. And what happens is when we do that, we miss the greater arc to the story. Right? We miss the ways that God has been faithful in the past and how he's specifically paved the way for Jesus and the opportunity to deepen our understanding of who he is. You see, there's a little phrase in here that I think is crucial. It's in verse 18 as Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples. He says, tell this man who has this upper room that we don't know about. He says, go into the city to a certain man and say this. The teacher says, my time has come. Or my time is at hand. I think that's the key phrase in this early section. And that's why I've entitled this point, The Shadow of Passover. I don't mean by that to insinuate that the Passover itself was not a real event. Or that it's merely an allusion to something else. It's not what I'm getting at. Instead, what I'm calling us to see today is that we must interpret the very real events of Exodus. The very real deliverance of the people of Israel in light of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is getting ready to infuse new meaning into this Passover observance. He's saying, my time is at hand. All of this is meant to be spiraling towards me, and it's now here. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's consider the message of Passover, right? This is the story that Jesus is hooking into. So the first implication I think we can draw is, is this. The message of Passover is the same message of Christ. And it's essentially this. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. Think back to the story in Exodus. The Israelites were unable to fix their circumstances. They were unable to come out underneath the oppressive hand of the Egyptians. They had to look outside of themselves for deliverance. And to do so, they had to exercise faith. They had to exercise faith. The Passover was ultimately an act of faith. 
They were having to trust the word of the Lord that he would indeed deliver them on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. That he would save them because someone else was sacrificed in their place and their blood was shed and that blood covers them. Well, the situation is the same for us today. Passover, Good Friday, where we remember the crucifixion, Easter, remember the resurrection, all of those showed the absolute foolishness of any sort of self-salvation project. And so the problem that each of us faces, of course, is that we are drawn to self-salvation projects. We like to be in control of what's happening. We like to get ourselves out of the perceived messes that we got ourselves into. And so this morning, I would ask you to consider where are you being drawn to some kind of self-justification project. Maybe you're trying to find it in your job. You're looking for some measure of financial success, or you've climbed the ladder, or you've reached this position. Once I get there, I'll be fine. That's a self-salvation project. Maybe it's related to our marriage or our families, right? Maybe I'll just, one day I get married, and that'll be the moment that everything will be okay. Or once I have kids, and it'll be okay. Or once my family looks like this, then everything will be fine. And we find over and over again that because all of us are sinners, including our families, that always disappoints us. Worst of all, because it's more subtle, we can be looking to our religious performance and behavior to justify ourselves. Right? So we say things, or at the end of the day, we rest in the fact, well, I go to church. Right? I go to city group. I read my Bible. I pray. I give generously, missing all along that those are invitations to respond, not places to earn. And so where in our hearts are we being drawn to this self-salvation project? Because Passover, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, they all say that is foolishness. It will not deliver on what you think it will deliver. So brothers and sisters, Passover and the events of Holy Week, it's an invitation to something different. To not look inward, and not even to look outward necessarily, but to look upward. To look upward to our God who has sent his son to save and to deliver us. So where do you need to look upward this morning? Well, that's the shadow of Passover. Let's look at the substance of Christ now. Now, Jesus is going to warn here in this passage, it almost seems like an interlude in the discussion of his impending betrayal. And if we can imagine the difficulty of that conversation for a moment, right? Three years, Jesus has been rolling with this crew of ragtag disciples, all along, Jesus, of course, knows how this is going to go. He knows what's going to happen. And the moment has finally come where he has to bring this to the fold. And there's something for us to learn here. So look at verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Apparently, Judas has done a pretty good job concealing his treachery here. No one knows at the table who Jesus is referencing. So they all go around and they ask, is it I, Lord? Is it me? They're genuinely sorrowful and confused. And the language here, I think, is trying to get us to see how intimate 
this scene is. Sometimes we get the idea of the Last Supper as the painting, right, by da Vinci, the, the Last Supper painting that we're all familiar with. was this big, long table, and like, I don't know, Andrew's down at that end, and Peter's way down at this end, and we can't really hear what's going on down here, and we can't hear what's happening here. It's just kind of this long, stretched out, confusing table. Well, here's actually how the table would have been set up. It would be a U-shape. It would be a U-shape with Jesus and a few of his disciples at the head, and then the rest of them very close by all within earshot of what is happening here. They were gathered in an intimate way in this formation. And so Jesus answers his disciples, who's going to betray me? He says, the one who has dipped his hand in the dish. He's almost emphasizing that this is the height of betrayal. To share a meal of this level of significance with a friend before turning on him. Right? Because to share a meal in this context would have actually made you family. The Passover meal was to be observed in family units. Well, the disciples have left their families. They have left everything behind to follow Jesus. He is their family. And yet in that context, someone at this intimate level was going to turn their back and betray the Son of God. And here's the thing about Judas. You, you maybe noticed it. His response is different than all the others, isn't it? I don't know if you caught it, but the response reveals not the fact that Judas is caught, but it reveals the condition of his heart. It reveals his posture towards Jesus. So while all the others refer to Jesus as Lord, Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? Is it I, Teacher? I think much has rightly been made of the fact that Judas never once references Jesus as Lord. Anywhere in the scriptures, nowhere in the gospels, but only as Teacher and Rabbi. That is the posture of Judas's heart. He is resisting Jesus being his king. He's resisting Jesus being in charge. He's resisting Jesus as Lord. And before we look at Judas with too much scorn, of course, each and every one of us does the same. Right? We have sought to take the place of the Lord in our own life. And Jesus' reply of, you have said so, you can imagine the sinking feeling within Judas. And by the way, this seems to be whispered. None of the other disciples freak out all of a sudden. This almost indicates to us that Judas is in a place of honor among the disciples, yet he is the one who from that intimate place will turn his back on Jesus. Now, there's always a tension here when we talk about what's going on in Judas's heart and mind, and we simultaneously think about what God is doing. Right? I can't resolve this tension fully for you here this morning, but I think we actually have something to learn in it. Because on the one hand, Jesus says, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. I mean, he says, it's better if that man was not even born. But in the same breath, he also says this. He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written. You see the tension there? As it is written, the Son of Man goes. Here's what that phrase means, I think, to us today. We shouldn't think for a moment that any of the events that are taking place at this Last Supper are outside of the plan of God. We shouldn't think for a moment that God is caught off guard. In fact, what Jesus keeps saying over and over and over again is it has to happen this way. There is no other way. It is written and it will happen just as it says. Jesus is there to fulfill all that has come before him. He is staying true to the mission of God, the very mission that will cost him his own life in order to extend grace and mercy and compassion 
to an undeserving humanity. But at the same time, there is real sin involved here. There is a betrayal. It's not like God is twisting the arm of Judas. He has chosen to betray. And this is not just a Judas problem. Though Judas is uniquely singled out here, don't forget, in a mere 24 hours, all of the other 11 disciples will abandon Jesus. They will all flee and slip away into the night, covered by darkness, as Jesus is arrested by a mob. In fact, in just a few verses later, in verse 31, Jesus says to the rest of the disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So what do we make of this tension? Like I said, I think there's something for us here to learn. I think John Stott is helpful. Listen to what he says. It is essential to keep together these two complementary ways of looking at the cross. On the human level, Judas gave him up to the priests, who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers who crucified him. But on the divine level, the Father gave him up, and he gave himself up to die for us. As we face the cross then, we can say to ourselves both, I did it, my sins sent him there, and at the same time, he did it. His love took him there. The cross, which is an exposure of human evil, is at the same time a revelation of the divine purpose to overcome the human evil thus exposed. Do you see how stepping into the tension there helps us? Stepping into that tension helps set in our own hearts, and our own posture before the Lord, a right heart. Because this conversation means a few things for us. First of all, it means we must consider our own participation in the story. We are also, as Stott said, responsible for this. Peter, in his letter, writing to people who had never known Jesus before, never been, was not in Jerusalem, didn't see his crucifixion, he says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. See, this is not just the disciples' sins. This is not just the sins of those in Jerusalem. This is the sin of mankind. This is our sins that Jesus himself bore on the tree. And you know what the beauty of the gospel is, brothers and sisters? Despite our participation in this, which God knew about all along, by the way, Jesus still went to the cross. He still went there on our behalf. He still died for us, though we are undeserving. That is what the Bible defines as love. Not seeking your own, but laying down your own for those who don't even deserve it. That's the good news of the gospel. But there's also this as we consider this scene. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been hurt by someone close to you? Have you ever been hurt by a dear friend, a family member? Have you been abandoned by those you thought had your back? Because Jesus here is telling us that he knows that feeling intimately. He knows it more than even we will. And not only that, he's able to sympathize with us in our hurts, in our pains, in our struggles, in our broken relationships. And so this morning, as you are feeling all the effects of your own sin and a fallen world, we should look to Jesus, right? Knowing Jesus knows everything that's going on in the hearts and minds of Judas and the rest of his disciples, but yet he keeps eating. He keeps presiding over the meal. And not only that, he's going to explain the moment that all that is about to happen to him was precisely for those 
who would betray and abandon him. Judas and the disciples first, you and I right after that. So look at verse 26 as Jesus gives us further instructions on his death. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you can imagine for just a moment, the people of Israel had observed this meal, or they were supposed to observe this meal for over 1,500 years at this point. And so Jesus is presiding over the Passover meal, and all of a sudden, he breaks from tradition. All of a sudden, he pauses, right? And rather than continuing forward with the Passover meal as it usually would happen, he breaks from the usual liturgy and imagery. You can almost feel the disciples on the edge of their seat, like, wait, what is Jesus doing right now? Right? We know what comes next in the order, but yet he's pausing and he's stopping. This is where Jesus says, my time is at hand. He's now explaining what his time is. As Tim Keller says, all the history of the people of God has been moving forward to this moment. Every return from exile, every deliverance from any tyrant, every substitutionary sacrifice of an animal, everything. Everything that has ever happened in the whole history of redemption and the whole history of God's work with his people, everything is moving forward to this. This is the climactic moment in the history of redemption and in the history of the world. Jesus is getting ready to explain it all. He's getting ready to say, yes, you know what's come before, but listen to this. This is it. This is the moment. He's now explaining the whole purpose of his coming, and the whole purpose of his coming it has to do with the death. It has to do with a cross, right? All of this is coming to a head and centered on his impending death. And there are two things that ring loudly and clearly here. The first thing is that his death is substitutionary. And the second thing is that his death is sacrificial. So let's look at both of those in order. Substitutionary first. The language Jesus is using here is clear on the substitution point, right? He takes the bread and he says, this is my body. And the cup, and he says, this is my blood. Now, as just the quickest aside I possibly can, because this is a source of controversy, Jesus can't be saying these are literally his body and his blood. That's hard to argue since, of course, Jesus' literal body was right there. So the disciples aren't looking at the bread and going, oh, I get it, you're in the bread now, right? That's not what's going on, okay? What he's saying is that this bread, right, this cup, these elements are now representative of who I am. They're now representative of what I've come to do. Now, that doesn't mean we swing all the way to the other end of the spectrum and claim that there's nothing happening as we observe the Lord's Supper, and we'll see that in just a moment. But he's not speaking literally. He's saying this represents what I'm about to do. This is representative of the cross that I'm about to go to. And what he's saying here is these elements, as they do represent that, they get to the heart of substitution. He says with the cup, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, all covenants in the Bible have blood associated with them. In some way, shape, or form, there's blood that is brought to the table, and the new covenant that Jesus is bringing is no different. But this idea of for is the idea of substitution. You could translate for in the place of. 
on behalf of, just as the blood of the lamb was on behalf of the people of Israel, so too will Jesus' blood be on behalf of his people. He stands in their place. And this language of substitution is central to our understanding of the good news of the gospel. Listen once more to how Stott puts this. This is one of my favorite summaries of the gospel. He says, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, but God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Do you see how substitution strikes at the heart of the gospel? It's worth asking ourselves this morning where we have done just that. Where have we substituted ourselves into the place of God? Because we've all done this. We've all claimed those prerogatives that only belong to God alone. We've put ourselves in the place that only God deserves to be. But as we encounter that in our lives, we look to Christ. We look to God himself who substituted himself into our place, though we were undeserving. So his death is substitutionary. But secondly, it's sacrificial. You see, if you paid attention to the explanation of the Passover meal, you'll realize that something is missing here. Right? Something is missing from the meal. And I'll be honest, I've never noticed this until I was prepping this sermon. I mean, do you notice what's missing? It's one huge obvious thing. Anybody get it? The lamb. The lamb itself is missing, right? It's the main course of the meal, the actual Passover lamb. Now, surely Jesus and the disciples had a lamb there. Surely they had one there. That was the whole center point of the observance of the meal. So what's going on here? Well, I think the answer is profound, though it might not be immediately obvious to us. You see, Jesus does not make reference to the lamb. It's not even mentioned that they eat the lamb because Christ himself is the Passover lamb of God. Christ himself has come to fulfill what all of those lambs year after year were meant to represent. The death of the firstborn in Exodus is setting the stage for the death of the very Son of God. The main course is being replaced. Jesus is almost saying here, do you really think that it was a lamb that saved God's people in the Exodus? Do you really think it was the sacrifice of a furry creature that caused that? Right? No, no, this had to do with me. Right? This was setting the stage for my coming whether or not you realized this was happening. He's so clearly proclaiming here, I am the substitute. I take the judgment you deserve on myself. And I am the sacrifice. I am the lamb who was slain so that you are not. You see, the shadow of Passover gives way to the substance of Christ in this moment. He's saying, I have come to fulfill this. I have come to be the Passover lamb. All of this was pointing to me. And then the beauty of this moment is that Jesus offers to us a sustaining meal. He offers to us a sustaining meal. Look at verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
See, Jesus is hinting here that though his body is about to be broken, though his blood is about to be shed in his death, this is not actually the end of the story. He says, I will not drink of this wine again until the day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom to come. Now, I'm pretty confident the disciples are lost at this point, right? And we can all be like the disciples, what do you mean, Jesus? What's going on here? I mean, he's just prepared them for his death, but now he's talking about drinking wine again with them in the future when all this has taken place. You can almost feel the confusion that's happening there. Well, Jesus is indicating that his death is not the end of the story, but it's actually the beginning of something new. And it's the beginning of something greater. You see, Jesus' death is the beginning of the death of death itself. His death now sets the stage for resurrection, where sin, death, Satan, and evil are defeated decisively. And we know this in part now. Right? We know this to be true. The kingdom has come somewhat, but we await its fullness in the time that is to come. We will know fully one day the death of death and its finality when Jesus returns to set all things right. The time that, as C.S. Lewis has said, all that is sad will come untrue. All that is sad will come undone. And so we are called, brothers and sisters, to take heart because the death of death itself is coming. But until that day when it arrives, we all know that far too often we feel the brokenness of this world. Right? We, of all people, know the sting and the pain of death. We know the struggles that come from living in a fallen and broken world. And so as we go through this life, Jesus has given us a simple thing, a sustaining meal for us to prepare for the day that is to come. And that simply is the Lord's Supper. That simply is communion. The Last Supper is actually our first supper. It's the opportunity that we have to look back to that moment and to have a sustaining meal that carries us to glory. But here's the reason why it's sustaining. It's not because of the meal itself, right? I mean, it's a piece of bread or a cracker and a half an ounce of grape juice, right? No one's left here and been great. Don't have to eat lunch today. Got communion, right? There's nothing in this that is physically going to sustain you for the rest of your day. It is sustaining, though, because it's meant to be spiritually nourishing to us. It's meant to get deep down into the depths of our soul and our need for Jesus, our need for the gospel, and remind us of what Jesus has done. I love what one author has said about the Lord's Supper as we wrap up here. He says, when Jesus first shared the supper with his disciples, he was giving them something firm to hold on to, like a beam set in concrete. Jesus would soon be betrayed and crucified in their place. He wanted them not only to remember this sacrifice, but to grasp its significance. Jesus was leaving, and other people, priorities, and persecutions would soon threaten the devotion of their hearts. But the Lord's Supper was a handle they could grasp through it all. Doubts would come, but they would remember. Dangers would come, but they would remember. Dissenters would abandon them but they would remember the indelible moment that Jesus broke the bread and served the cup. It was a simple act, a common meal, but it would soon become their sustaining grace. And that, brothers and sisters, is the meal that is before us. That is why each and every week when we gather here, we take communion together. It is the handle 
It's something firm we can hold on to through all that this life brings. It invites us to remember the death of Jesus that purchased our redemption, but it doesn't just orient us backwards. It also orients us forward to the meal that awaits us, that is promised in Revelation 19. The Apostle John there writes, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we partake of communion, remembering that last supper where Jesus infuses this with so much meaning for us. But we also await the meal that's to come. We look forward to when Jesus returns, when he sets the table before his bride, the church, and we get to enjoy and feast with our Savior, the one who said, I will not drink of this again until that day. So I'll ask you this morning, where do you need to look backward? Where are you racked with guilt and shame? Where are you feeling defeated in your sin? Where are you feeling just simply unworthy or stuck? Because Jesus knew all of this about you, and he still died for you. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed in our place. He loves you, and he wants to lead you into freedom. Now, you might need help with this. Right? The Israelites, as they were being led to freedom out of Egypt, they wanted to go back. Right? Sometimes we need somebody alongside us saying, no, you're going the right way. Keep moving forward. And so do we have those people in our lives? Do we have people who know what's going on and can tell us, no, this is the right way and to walk beside us? And then I'm guessing there are some of you here this morning who need to look forward. We need to look forward to the meal that awaits us? Where are you keenly feeling the effects of a broken and fallen world? Where are we facing the reality of death, of disappointments, of frustrations? Jesus said, in this world, we will face trouble. So where do you feel that trouble closing in? Because it's precisely when we feel these things that the Lord invites us to lift our eyes upward toward what is coming, to the promise of his return, where we will taste of the fruit of the vine with our Savior in his Father's kingdom, a kingdom that is unshakable, eternal, never-ending. So the Lord's Supper is an invitation before us all. It's a common meal, but it's a sustaining meal for us as God's people. But we're called to participate. We're called to partake, to eat and to drink, and to enjoy and be spiritually nourished in the blessings of Christ's finished work for us. So whether this morning this is the first time you've exercised faith in that way, or whether you've had that faith as long as you can remember, the invitation is the same. Come, eat, come, and drink. Come and be nourished in our Savior who gave his life so that we might have life. Let's pray.